Hi, this is Friedrich Lindenberg. You're listening to Transit Lounge Radio with Dark Havens. Fabulous. And Friedrich, I understand that you have played a role in confronting hidden money and power and bringing some of those secrets to light. So about four years ago, I started working with the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Organized Crime and Corruption. We're a, um, a network of investigative journalists in around 40 countries. And we dig into organized crime, large-scale corruption cases around the world with a particular focus on Central and Eastern Europe. But increasingly, we also have teams working in Africa and Latin America. And so we're really interested in how basically kleptocratic government structures are um, capturing entire governments, capturing entire states, and draining all the wealth from local populations and then hiding it using the offshore financial system. It seems like it's something that's quite prevalent in these, um, there's a lot of, especially I understand like the resource curse, so countries that are endowed with great natural resources, somehow the people who can get their hands on those resources have a tendency to siphon them out of the country for their own use. So how do you actually find the information that you need about this kind of thing and how do you actually bring the evidence to light? It's it's incredibly prevalent. Um, I think most countries outside of um, the kind of OECD are really kind of being exploited by many of the people who run them, and they're being used basically as for-profit enterprises of individuals or families rather than as kind of public good entities. Most of the time, when we when we start an investigation, we have someone giving us a little bit of a of a pointer. Sometimes, though, you can actually also just find it in the balance sheets of a big company that's involved in a country, and you can just see, okay, yeah, they're transfer pricing a lot of a lot of wealth out of the country, or they're taking it out in some other way, and um, you can get a sense of, yeah, this is probably not benefiting the ordinary people on the street who um, want good healthcare and education. Yeah, I mean, we mostly look at um, at kind of attempts to really siphon money out of out of state budgets. A lot of the time, that's done by people who have a connection to the ruling elites or or politicians. Um, but obviously, you've also got companies in the world that have extremely exploitative practices, whether it's resource companies or whether it's um, companies that are involved in infrastructure projects, um, engineering, and 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 stuff like that. They do get a lot of support from outside. Um, a, obviously, these international companies that Im- immediately kind of want to make a buck or a billion bucks. Uh, but then there's also the, what we call the offshore criminal services industry. And so this entire setup of companies that um, help you to hide your money, um, make it disappear in one place and make it reappear in another place with a good cover story for how you got it and um, with the ability to then go and have a nice shopping trip in Paris or buy a piece of real estate in Berlin. And so this is the kind of money laundering industry, I guess, but on a global scale and, and offshore. And so it's things like anonymization, like shell companies, trusts that you can't very easily find out who the beneficial owner is. And then I understand you were instrumental in bringing the Troika laundromat and maybe the Azerbaijan laundromat activities to light. Do you want to talk a little bit more in detail about those? Yeah, so I think the the first thing to understand about money laundering is that it's basically two industries that need to work together, right? One is the um, the offshore incorporation industry. So you need to set up a company somewhere where the ownership structure is unclear, where there's a company owning another company, owning another company, and they're all in different kind of secrecy jurisdictions. 
um, so that you can obscure who's holding the, the money. The other thing, though, that you really need is also a banking system, right? And so there's also this aspect of a series of banks that um, have been essentially captured and compromised and have therefore become facilitators of, of taking stolen money out of one country, mixing it around a little bit and eventually um, making it reappear. Okay, so we're talking about money laundering and the kind of uh, financial tools that exist to facilitate money laundering in the offshore financial economy. Yeah, exactly. So like the very first um, money laundering scheme that I helped to investigate was called the Russian laundromat. And it was essentially a, I don't know, three-legged monster. So um, there was a crime group that set up um, companies in Russia who then owed money to companies in um, in Moldova and they went to court in Moldova and um, basically um, got fake court verdicts that entitled them to hundreds and hundreds of millions of debt repayments for debts that had never been given out mm-hmm. um, and so they started establishing kind of a legend for the um, for the for the money and then they took the, that money out of Moldova and sent it in, in this case for example to Latvia uh, which is already inside the EU financial market. And they had a bank there that assisted them. Um, at the time, it was Trusta Commerzbank that's now been unrolled because it just basically did only this. And so, um, yeah, they, they then took the money into the EU. And once you've got it in the EU, you can, you can use it pretty normally, right? So you just send it to a bank account um, in Cyprus or in Panama, um, or you use it to pay school fees for your kids in Britain or a piece of real estate um, somewhere else. So I guess there are many levels of complicity where people are probably aware of this happening. Like I've read some reports from bank employees who, you know, have to flag a possibility of some kind of suspicious activity and that they would be flagging, 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 and nothing would happen and no one would actually act on it. And even though the bank is aware mm-hmm. at multiple levels that there's something very shady going on, that the, the actual checks that are meant to be in place within the organisation are often not kind of upheld. What sort of things did you uncover in this investigation and where did it start to unravel? Like what was the point that you kind of went, aha, we can put all of this together? Because I think for me looking at some of the information in the databases and you've got company names and registers, but then to actually create the story around that and to understand how the different players are connected and what's gone on, mm-hmm. that takes the like real investigative journalist skill, mapping the data together into a convincing narrative clearly in some cases has led to enough evidence to kind Mm -hmm. of unravel the bank itself or I don't know if people have gone to jail for these kind of practices. Oh yeah, definitely. So um, I think Probably the most illustrative example that we've worked worked on so far um, was a money laundering scheme that we called the Azeri Laundromat. Um, It was a total of 3 billion euros um, that were taken out of mostly Azerbaijan. Um, And what was interesting there is like the difficulty with money laundering is always you have to prove what's called the predicate crime. So what kind of criminal act was was actually instrumental in in getting the money in the first place? So has it come from drug running or prostitution or gambling or you have to prove that there was illegal activity that generated the money to start with, yeah? Exactly. And that's kind of the difficult part a lot of the time, um, especially with the Azeri laundromat. We only were able to see that there was some money coming in actually from government ministries in Azerbaijan. And then uh, the bulk of the money actually came from companies that were named after other companies in Azerbaijan. So there was a company that was called, I think, one we had a name that was one character of the name of the cell phone company in the in the country, and so we 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 still don't know entirely what what the what the origin story of that money is, but then what what you could see is the money would would go again through a money laundering scheme through a bank in Estonia, um, a branch office of Danske Bank um, that's about to be un, undone, 
and um, would then actually be used for political influence in, in Europe. Um, so there was a concerted effort basically by the, the investors of this money, who must be somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of the Azeri government, to influence public opinion and especially kind of the assessments of Azerbaijan and its human rights records. I remember, I think you were telling us that there had been a, polit a German politician in Bavaria, possibly, who had been sent money and then was part of the committee overseeing the elections in Azerbaijan. Is that right? Yeah. So there was, there was two different things. One is they, they went to do election monitoring in Azerbaijan. And several of the politicians who participated in these kind of fact-finding missions um, were actually given consulting uh, fees or essentially bribes um, for... Um, or giving a positive verdict to, to kind of attest that uh, Azerbaijan was a, was a perfect democracy. A free and fair election. I mean, what tips it over from being like a genuine consulting fee to actually being a bribe? Is it the amount or is it the fact that you're expected to give a certain opinion in, in exchange for the money? A, we never really learned from anyone that we asked, as far as I know, um, what consulting specifically they had, uh, they had performed for, um, for the, for the Azeri government. Um, but also, I mean, even if you were to provide some consulting and you're then kind of going as an independent observer to observe an election, I think you have a conflict of interest that makes it impossible for you to give an, give a, um, neutral verdict on the election, right? Mm -hmm. If you're, judging an activity that benefits the people that pay you. Yeah. Um, it's hard to stay objective with the hand that feeds you, right? <laughs> exactly. But that's what we try to do. Well, <laughs> Some of us. <laughs> I think it gets harder when you're, when you're literally being bought to say nice things yeah. about someone. Um, and being paid like hundreds of thousands of, of euros or something. Yeah, exactly. The, the, it, was, it, was, it was good money to be made there. The other thing that happened is that the Council of Europe um, was doing a report on also the state of democracy in, uh, in Azerbaijan. And again, several members of this, an Italian MP got, got pretty, pretty famous for just receiving large amounts of money. Does Azerbaijan also kind of curtail access to information from outside the country? Um, are, are the kind of media sort of outlets state-owned? It's a super interesting country, right? It's trying to essentially align itself um, with Western countries. It, it has a lot of, it puts a lot of effort into its public appearance, both in Europe, but also in the US. Um, but at the same time, it's a very author authoritarian state. Um, most of the industry in the country is captured by a small group of families that um, essentially make, make it out amongst themselves. And, um, we've also in, in, in other investigations found large amounts of money and, um, real estate that the ruling family had, um, acquired off, uh, offshore, especially in Britain, um, more recently also in Russia. Um, the country doesn't seem to necessarily be, be run only in the best interest of the people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to say that Azerbaijan is a oil producing country. And every every um, Western oil company really wants to do business there, and we're trying to build pipelines that would bring that oil and gas straight to um, straight to Germany and to other European countries. Because um, physically, it's quite close, like geographically. Physically, it's quite close, and also it provides uh, a geopolitical kind of alternative to taking all of our gas from Russia, right? And so it's attractive um, from that point of view. And I mean, do you think that's a reason that many countries that might have stricter laws about democracy and crime and money laundering might turn a blind eye? It's hard to prove any of that. I, the work you're doing is clearly bringing a lot more of it to light. And it seems like there's a sort of a shift in the kind of worldview that this is not okay when previously it had just been accepted as that's the way things are. Where do you think we are in this kind of narrative now? I don't know whether this, it's, it's always been like that. My understanding is that a lot of this actually got created sometime in the 70s, 80s, 90s. After like the Bretton Woods Agreement collapsed, I hear. 
Well, also after the British Empire really um, had to pretend that it was gone. So it really is a post-empire kind of new financial empire. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. And um, also, obviously, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the privatization that, uh, that happened there, and there was a lot of money to be made and a lot of wealth to be brought out of potentially unstable countries. In terms of how to fix it, that's a really difficult question. There's been a, a big attempt, I think, from the U.S. government and others to use individual sanctions um, as a way of essentially blocking individuals out of the worldwide financial system. I think that's been a very successful mechanism for making the Russians angry. Um, it's also definitely hurt the business of, of, of many oligarchs. Whether it actually helps to stem the tide of offshore finance is a, is a whole different thing. Um, there, there's a second effort that's been going on to create beneficial ownership registers that would force um, companies to disclose their ultimate beneficial owner. Even if they're in like um, secrecy kind of jurisdictions like Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or Luxembourg. Exactly. So in theory, what you should be forced to do is to say, hey, I have a company and there are seven companies owning this company, but really ultimately they all belong to John over there and, and I need to identify John. I mean, it seems like a reasonable kind of common sense thing to do, right? Yes, but obviously what you do instead is you say, oh yeah, but I'm owned by a BVI company and a BVI company, I have no idea um, who actually owns that. And so these systems are, aren't being applied rigorously enough. And especially here in Germany, it's a, it's a complete farce. There's a transparency register solely because it's part of the EU's anti-money laundering directive. And the way that it's being, the data is being collected and the way that it's being then shared and, and made accessible um, makes it entirely useless. I think it's, it's probably worse than not having one at all. Because you have the idea that there is one, but then it doesn't function. Exactly, because now the permanent secretary of the of the finance ministry gets to go on a panel and say we've got a transparency register. But if you ever actually need uh, need need information on a company, there's still no way of getting any. Are there places where this is working better that um, we could look to as models? Hilariously enough, Britain did it best. So I think there was a there was a period, especially under under David Cameron, where. They were, they were really following both paths with full steam, right? So at the, at the very same time, the, the offshore economy continued to be facilitated through Britain, but they also started to do real steps to unwind it. Um, they did not really do enough to force companies to really file these, these reports or to delist companies that didn't file um, that information or to delist companies that filed offshore vehicles as their ultimate owner. But I think they were really close and now they have... I don't know, um, made off to, to um, fantasy land of Brexit and are too distracted to really follow that agenda through. Um, so it was really close, but no cigar. The scale of it is so unthinkable. Like, how do you even start to understand? And I think the work that you're doing, there were some of the tools that you yeah. have for kind of mapping or you know, visualizing the way the data kind of comes together. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the sort of the technical tools and the way that you're working to actually help people expose this and to trace it? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, so I, I think basically, yeah, that, that's how the design of these things works is there's this number that I think gets, gets handed around a lot of Dunbar's number, like a cognitive limit that as, as a society, we can only really have a community of, of creatures up to 150 members. And after that, it has to be a proper managed society. And I think, um, there's kind of a complexity limit in our heads, right? And if you, if you make up a, a scheme of more than 150 money laundering vehicles, then it becomes really hard for humans to, to understand what you're doing and to track it. We've been, we've been doing a lot of work, and this is my role at the OCCRP, um, to try and bring together information from different places and to try and connect it in ways that would help people to kind of un, 
untangle the the web of corporate ownership of of evidence etc um that lies behind these kind of um, money hiding schemes to um, peel back the layers of the onion exactly but also to yeah to connect all the available information right yeah. so you've got a lot of information in 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 some countries that is being released as open data many countries for example run portals where they release company ownership but also government procurement right so who's winning state contracts mm-hmm. What are the what are the other data that that become available, right? So there's a lot of leaked information that's um, constantly being made, made accessible to reporters, and our 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 goal is really to kind of build this into a coherent sort of archive, into a very very patchy map of the of the world of offshore, and to say, well, here's some explanation for. Um, how you uh, who owns companies in Panama here's some explanation for who owns companies in Kyrgyzstan and um now let's look for all the ones that are in both lists and those might be already worth um spending some time with yeah so you kind of your tools are helping people to connect the dots and then they can cross reference okay so this company that's had procurement contracts for the government for x y or z is kind of ringing alarm bells yes so we we receive data in a in a broad variety of forms and to me it's it's taken a long time because as a technologist you look at data as like either being structured information that comes in a in a database type of format um uh, and that's that's really nice to analyze and you, do, you can do kind of quantitative tricks and um, like it's already in a kind of spreadsheet somehow so it's just lists of figures and things exactly and then there's like the other case where and um, we literally get someone's hard drive right and there's all their files on it all their emails all their word documents their holiday photographs even and the goal that we've been I've been aiming for is to really come up with kind of a language for investigative reporting um what are the atoms that an investigative story consists of and one of one of these atoms might be an email that someone has written uh, and another atom might be a company record in a database or um a procurement contract that we have some data about And so the question is kind of how can we how can we link these together? Um so for example in an email you might have a footer that contains a phone number and then you really want to know okay for that phone number has that number been used in any in any incorporation documents to to create a company maybe in an offshore jurisdiction and finding these links that um would be would be kind of out of, out of the ordinary that's sort of what we're aiming for. It sounds like such a fascinating process but I can imagine it's also very time consuming and you're doing a lot of digging through things that don't necessarily lead anywhere. Um what's what's the point you start to go okay we've really got something here. I've made enough connections that I can take it to the next level. And and what do you do next? Like do you also do the reporting? You write the stories? Um uh, myself I focus exclusively on the on the data access and and visibility basically on on data linkage if you will. And then we work with reporting teams both um that work on a transnational basis uh, and also often within our kind of partner countries. So we have a lot of what we call member centers in countries like Moldova or Ukraine or in Central Asian countries where there's really only a very small group of investigative reporters digging into that kind of subject matter. And so we try to su- uh, provide them support both by providing access to to information um that might be useful and also sometimes I'm working with them kind of trying to make sure they they know how to investigate companies in Cyprus or in in Germany or in the US right none of these crimes can be investigated by looking into into one country alone and um, you always need to need to be able to connect it to what's happening in this offshore financial system in many cases also what happens in western countries where the money is then either hidden away or used for other purposes I know it's like Frederick Obermeier said that crime is global and journalism needs to be global and also the stories that we're telling are all kind of connected. 
Yeah, this is also the origin story for OCCRP. Um, it was founded actually by, by two reporters, one of whom was working out of, out of Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, and the other one was working in Romania. Ten years back already, they could find so many connections between the organized crime structures, the drug dealers, the human traffickers um, in both of these countries that really um, they realized that they've been sleeping through a period of globalization in crime. And so I think the idea now is that um, if, if crime has become properly globalized, then reporting needs to as well. And we need to kind of think about reporting not as a thing that is a national press issue, but as a thing that um, always requires these kind of transnational structures. That takes me to my question that's been burning in my mind since we ran into each other at the Dark Havens. What were you doing in Bosnia for the last three years? Um, so... Um, for the last three years, I've been living in, in Sarajevo, in Bosnia. Um, that's simply the headquarters of OSCRP. So OSCRP was founded as an outgrowth of a small reporting center in, in Bosnia in kind of cooperation with um, another center in, in Romania. And now we have, um, uh, I think, 35 different member centers in different countries. Um, so it's very much kind of a, an organization that has its, has its roots in these kind of local reporting outfits. So um, in many of these countries, you've got a, a press that's largely owned by the government, uh, does yellow press reporting. And then you have these small teams of four or five people, and they really want to dig into who is, um, who's running the country, who's got the money, um, who's trading the drugs, who's trading the humans, all these horrible kind of aspects. And for them, basically, we we build a coordinative kind of network and we also provide kind of support, whether it's through data or through research capabilities. One question, what is the yellow press? Oh, sorry, this is, um, I was just referring to like um, tabloid press. We've encountered it, especially in Serbia, where there's a, a newspaper called Informer. They've, they've actually started crusades against us. So they send paparazzi after our uh, chief reporter in the country. They really kind of ran these these kind of campaigns to say, um, hey, these people that are that are claiming the government is corrupt, they're moral degenerates or whatever it is. Um, like, how do you try to manage that? What sort of security or you know safety concerns do you address with the journalists that you're working with, and how do you help keep them safe? That's another big uh, big part of what OCCRP does is to provide um, advice on how to deal with security. Um, both on a kind of digital level when it comes to how to keep our information secure and um, make sure that we, we don't accidentally become a leak ourselves, um, but also in, in a physical sense. Whenever I meet the reporters that we work with, I'm stunned that two beers in, they can tell you what they've, what they've really encountered, the kind of personal sacrifice they've had to make for, for the work they're doing. Um, sometimes attacking their family members, sometimes physically getting attacked, getting shot. Getting, getting harassed, getting, getting slandered. Um, so it's, it's definitely a job that requires a very, very thick skin to keep going. Quite a high level of moral integrity as well, because you have to also feel that taking the risk is worth it and that in the end, the stories that you uncover and the information that you make public is going to actually have an effect at changing what's happening. Yeah, I think many of the people that we work with are actually patriots in the very best sense, right? They're people who really deeply think, okay, I live in a country that has a lot of work to do and I want to be there and I want to speak truth to power because I think it's going to enable the kind of reforms and the kind of change that needs to take place. And um, yeah, so I have, a, I have a great amount of respect for, for all these people. Absolutely. I have enormous respect for everyone who's doing this work because it's really important and often quite 
thankless. Except those moments when finally you see the story break and maybe you see someone go to, you know, some some scheme dismantled or a bank un- unrolled. Or and do you have any kind of visions or hopes or dreams for the future? Oh, I'm I'm quite optimistic. I think there there is always kind of new. Um, policy developments that are happening based on um, on the realization that the offshore financial system is a big part of what keeps um, wealth unequally distributed in the world. And I think there is a real chance that especially the EU can actually um, end a lot of that of that financial opacity um, and make it so that um, it becomes easier for developing countries to retain the wealth that they naturally have. And I think then there will be a lot of very positive development and um, hopefully kind of prosperity resulting from it. So that would be would be kind of a fantastic um, step forward for, for, I think, the whole planet. Prosperity for all, not just the rich. Yeah, no, I mean, like you, you go, you go to go to many, many developing countries, and you realize how much wealth there really is, and how unevenly distributed it is, and um, you realize just how important um, this this kind of almost accidental looking accomplishment of Europe is creating a fair balance between this and making it so that anyone is incentivized to play by the rules and to also live within the country that they. They have their family in and, and make a good, good living for that. Obviously, the, the, the link to, to like the climate crisis and, um, to the refugee crisis where people feel forced to leave their own countries and they're basically, um, swimming the way that their money has already, already traveled, right? There was like a, a bank transfer in 1990 and now, um, the humans that should have benefited from that money are following the same route. One of the big problems we face is like, how do we make sure that um, the, the the investigations we publish cannot be cannot be easily censored away? And obviously, like now, everybody wants to do that via a blockchain. Um, it's really not the solution. I think kind of sometimes a nice pirate radio station or an FM transmitter placed in the right place would give much more people real access to information than some kind of crypto fanatics idea of how to make SHA-1 create world peace. Um, and so, yeah, let's let's build some radio transponders, not not blockchains. I'm so on board with that. He's bring back pirate radio. Thank you so <laughs> much for joining me in the transit lands today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much.